Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Dr. Ira. Have you been to see the new Hard Rock Casino? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just bring my three kids there all the time. I bet you do. You know, it's like a huge guitar. <laughs> uh-huh. We go to concerts there. The the new one, the one that looks like the guitar is getting ready to open up. Uh-huh. I'm going to see Billy Joel there early part of next year. Bragger. And I, and I like to gamble when I go down there and play a little bit of play a little bit of poker. Our guest right now is looking at him like, who is this life, this guy with this lifestyle? Like, no, because I always feel that I like to play my best hand. Oh, <laughs> but I'm bump. And that's why today we brought on a hand surgeon oh so we could play our best. Hand. Ira, when did you come up with that leave in? About uh, about two seconds before okay. we started today's okay, okay, show. Okay, okay, okay. So tell us about our guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Forster, not Forrester. All my patients say he spells his name wrong, but it's Dr. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Dr. Robert Forster with Treasure Coast Orthopedics. Good morning, Rob. Uh, thank you, Ira. Thank you for that lovely introduction. But it's Florida Orthopedic Specialist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh oh. I, I think the rest of your group's going to kill me. Florida orthopedic specialist. <laughs> okay. Florida orthopedic specialist. No wonder my patients' records haven't been getting there, right? <laughs> well, you know, they say paybacks are tough, but we got to give you a few. <laughs> uh, that's great. Anyway, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking time out of a busy day to, co to come here. How long have you been in Stewart? 23 years. And what brought you here? You know, it's interesting. What brought me here was a job and it, it, it's kind of an interesting story. We were, I was doing my fellowship in Sacramento, California. And one of the gentlemen who was also doing a fellowship there had a good friend who was uh, Dr. Brett Feldman, who was working down here at the time. And Brett and I met and he needed a hand surgeon in the group. And I was a hand surgeon graduating. And, uh, my wife gave me a few conditions she would move back to the East Coast as long as it was South or we were staying in California. So is she back. from the East Coast? We're from, we're both from Northeast, uh, yeah, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And so Brett is now in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Brett's a foot and ankle specialist who used to be with Florida orthopedic specialist. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're a hand surgeon. You've only known each other for how long? 23 years. 23 there we years. Go, there yeah. We go. Well, I never know the name of the group. I just know the people that I refer to. And and my staff handles that. Is that right? But but that's that's how it really Ooh. works in the real world. I, I, <laughs> I go to Billy Joel. My staff handles everything. <laughs> I didn't say that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> look, I, I'm available that day to drive. Okay. <laughs> if you need a driver. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you came to Stewart as an orthopedist. Have you always been a hand surgeon or did you do general orthopedics? But Like many young doctors that come out, you build your practice. And I was fully trained as a general orthopedic surgeon. I trained in Newark, New Jersey at a level one trauma center. So I did general orthopedics and hand surgery. Um, 
And as my practice developed and I got busier, I now only do upper extremity surgery. So from the fingers to the shoulder. Okay. So you're not too subspecialized. It's not, well, I only do the fourth and fifth fingers and only those digits that involve the ulnar nerve, everything else I refer out. So you do hands, wrist, arms, elbows, shoulder surgery. You're the guy to see, correct? Absolutely. I <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I thought. Now, why did you become a doctor? What, what brought you into this field? In retrospect, as a young kid, I suffered um, a, an injury as a small child. I was in um, a camper with my family and uh, likely a tornado hit. We were in Kansas in the summertime. Imagine that. And this uh, is getting very Wizard of Oz like. So yeah, well, go, go on. So I, I got suffered uh, significant burns. Oh, I'm sorry. And so we were camping. My father was cooking. And as the camper flew, it went on me. Ended up in a hospital for about a month. So, you know, I guess there was always some fascination with medicine. And there was always some um, degree of interest in medicine. I went on to do engineering, which has nothing to do with medicine. And uh, while I was there, I did research actually in small diameter blood vessels and making synthetic blood vessels that would be compatible for humans. And uh, that led me into maybe vascular surgery and going into medicine. And then from there, I did some more things in research and I really found uh, a passion in orthopedics and hand surgery. So you did research of Correct me if I'm wrong, because you've already corrected me once, and and so be it. You needed to. <laughs> Nothing but, new. The nerve, the nerve of you. Well, you know, that's why we have specialists. That's mm -hmm. right. Okay. So you did a year of research with Amgen, correct? Yeah. Spent a year doing research on nerve, peripheral nerve regeneration, not spinal cord, but the nerves in your arms and legs, and trying to improve the recovery of these nerves using things called uh, nerve nerve growth factors. And what was the outcome of that research? Eh, most of it didn't work, okay. <laughs> but unfortunately, or we've been using it today, but it, it was very interesting, a very thought provoking research at the time. Uh, I think we've come a long way scientifically, but we still 28 years later, since I did that research, we still don't have an answer on how to make nerves regenerate better. But that was long before stem cell research. Oh yeah. So do you think stem cells may be the answer to some of that? I, I think I had this conversation with somebody today, you know, the stem cells, there's a lot of different things that people say when they use the term stem cell. And it's kind of like, you, you know, you can have a car and be talking about a Chevy Chevette, or you can have a car and be talking about a Bugatti. So some stem cells truly have potential to regenerate into all different cells. And it's harnessing that ability, you know, and controlling it in a fashion that gives us the result we want that we haven't mastered. What's impressed me a lot about you is not just the orthopedic outcomes that you have, which are great, but the fact that you know general medicine better than most surgeons I've ever met. You know more about lipids than myself. 
And I'm pretty you're much the, a pseudo lipidologist. You're the HDL man. I'm the HDL man. Look at my license plate. <laughs> I'm going to get you to change that to LP little a eventually. You are. <laughs> As of right now, it's not a lot. So you does do that mean that, that you went into medicine not knowing what kind of physician you wanted to be? Or did you always kind of have the idea that you want to do orthopedics? No, I didn't think I was going to do orthopedics. Um, I really thought I was going into medicine because I didn't know, I, I was kind of lost, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I figured out I didn't want to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. So moved on to the next best thing. Mm -hmm. My sister had, uh, she just graduated, I think, from medical school and her husband was an orthopedic resident. And so I got to spend a little time with them when they were medical students. And I think that had a great influence, mm -hmm. you know, that really helped show me the way. And the more I went through my various rotations in med school, the more I was convinced the engineer in me likes to fix things. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like seeing somebody that's broken, putting them back together and seeing them recover and return back to function. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, extremely satisfying. You know, some parts of medicine I could not do. There's no way I could do what you guys do sometimes and deal with chronic disease. And, you know, I, I think of my colleagues, the oncologists, and I say, that's not for me. I can't do that. But what I do, I like. Well, you know, it's very interesting because you're almost in a way like a contractor. And, and, and follow me on this, Leanne, because I am going to make a Sometimes, point Sometimes, okay, I can see it <laughs> okay. at the end. Are you going to see We're it at the end? We're on the track. That's a little bit circuitous, but just no. follow me. So no. I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. And Columbia, South Carolina has a fairly large Jewish community. And I'm Jewish. And a lot of my friends' parents were Holocaust survivors. And what I noticed was that a lot of my friends became either doctors or contractors or builders. And they took after their parents who were their survivors. And a lot of them came over and started construction businesses. And I asked one of them why. And they said, because their father had seen the world torn down so much that in their own minds, they had to try to rebuild it. Perhaps subconsciously you became a surgeon because you can fix things. You can build things. Do you think your dad, having been a Holocaust survivor, had a big influence on where you are today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm one of six kids and I've got two sisters that are medical doctors. I've got two brothers that are PhDs. And my, my oldest brother has a master's degree in engineering and an MBA. And he kind of says, yeah, Dr. Forster, that's my brother or my sister. It's not me. <laughs> But, you know, that's, this, that's his joke. But the reality is when we grew up, we grew up and we had a garden, we had fruit trees, we built our own furniture, we did things constantly, you know. So as, as a kid growing up, we fixed our own stuff, we worked on our own cars, we did all those things that we don't have in our society so much anymore, but you were very mechanically inclined, you built and you... Um, fix things every day. And that was just the way it was. That that's fascinating. It actually is. If you just joined us here at WSTU, we're speaking with Dr. Rob Forster from Florida orthopedic specialist, hand surgeon, who's joined us here today. Where'd you train Rob? 
My undergraduate is now called Rutgers University Medical School. At the time, it was the New Jersey School of Medicine. And before that, it was the Seton Hall School of Medicine. So it's changed names quite a few times. But I did my um, surgical training there and my orthopedic training at the same uh, place in Newark, New Jersey. And then I did my fellowship at the University of California, Davis, which is actually the hospital and, and facilities are in Sacramento, Sacramento, California. Very close to wine country. Very close to wine country. That <laughs> Hence why you're my wine aficionado. Yes, that is exactly why. That is, that is, <laughs> it was a 45 minute drive. <laughs> wow. That's, that's truly spectacular. I've had some great wines and you know, Leanne and Frank that I'm, I'm a foodie and Rob Forster here. He puts me to shame with his knowledge of wine and food and wine and food pairing. I've learned a lot from him, but I've also learned a lot about what he does. And we're going to talk about that. What's your typical day like? Let's see. I go in early and I stay late. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a theme. That's, that's a, a recurring that's theme. A recurring each week. We, we see that a lot. Yeah. Well, today I went to the St. Lucie Medical Center. I had two surgeries there. I went back to the surgical center of the Treasure Coast. I did three surgeries there, and then I went to the office, and I saw approximately 24 patients. Oh. So that's a pretty normal day. Is that is that's, that's normal you do that five days a week? I do some variation of that four and a half days a week. Do you typically I, operate every day? Mondays all day, Wednesdays half a day, Thursdays in the afternoon, and that's that's enough. <laughs> Sometimes I get to add another one in here and there. What percentage of your cases are in the hospital versus in a surgery center? As few as possible. Aha. No, um, it's a small percentage. Okay. But uh, for instance, today I did a simple surgery on somebody, but that person only had one arm. So when I do an operation on their only hand, they can't take care of themselves and they live by themselves. Mm -hmm. So I had to do the surgery in the hospital so that the patient could recover in the hospital until they're safe to go home and care for themselves. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And out of all the procedures that you do, what do you like to do the best? I think the most satisfying procedure is still something so simple, carpal tunnel surgery. Because the, the, the amazing thing to me is how quickly patients improve. So there's that nerve thing, right? So tell us what carpal tunnel is. Carpal tunnel EN is a, a very common disorder. It's all it is. If you think about it, it's just putting a little bit too much pressure on the nerve to your hand and just maintaining that pressure a little bit too high and it causes damage to the nerve. And when the nerves don't work right, we have pain, we have numbness, tingling. One of the most common things is my hand wakes me up in the middle of the night. And the great thing is you do the surgery and 48 hours after they'll sleep through the night. And are we seeing more carpal tunnel syndrome with everyone using keyboards, computers, cell phones, texting, or is that whole keyboard ergonometric thing somewhat a fallacy i think there's so many components that go into that but I, I can answer it this way the gentleman i did my fellowship with he actually went back to school and got his mba in um the study of 
the incidence of disease. And he actually did his thesis on this question. And he was the star witness for IBM, Microsoft, and every keyboard maker in the world. And he never lost a case. So the reality is there are many factors that go into the disease. Keying is not really a very significant factor. Um, interestingly, one of the most uh, well-known work or hand-related factors is using vibratory equipment, like a power tools. And so the guy who works at the auto shop with the power air uh, wrenches all the time yeah. has got a bigger risk than the person with the keyboards. So given that carpal tunnel syndrome is compression of the median nerve Correct. and not the ulnar nerve. So it would involve the thumb, the index finger, the third finger, and half of the ring finger usually. Typically. Typically. Well, that's your typical distribution. And since most people with carpal tunnel don't start with you, they start with their family doctor, someone like Leanne or myself. And they say, I think I've got carpal tunnel syndrome. And we'll give them an ex exam in the office and we'll tap on their wrist. We'll see if we can't reproduce some of those symptoms in their test for that. And a lot of times we'll recommend splinting the hand at night and what they call a volar splint. Or sometimes, don't cringe, sometimes we'll actually inject, at least I will, down through the band, the flexor retinaculum. Correct. And inject a little bit of steroid into that median nerve area. Try and shrink it. Just don't hit the nerve. Yeah, if you do, it's pretty painful. And it's kind of damaging sometimes. It can hurt yeah. the nerve. It can. I haven't done that yet, though. Good. Don't Good. try. I'm not going to try. I know I do the injection. I haven't hit the nerve. So, uh, so <laughs> Is that the same thing? <laughs> so, no, but, it, but anyway, no, seriously, <laughs> but seriously, folks, when do patients generally need to be referred to someone like you or need a nerve conduction velocity prior to seeing you to get their surgery to repair their carpal tunnel syndrome. So that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, well, I wrote it that, and I, <laughs> I can tell so good. Um, thank you. You're welcome. So I think when you initiate treatment with a splint, with an injection or an anti-inflammatory and the patient responds, certainly there's no need for me. I think really what happens is if you treat the patient for that, they may do well for a few months. Uh, typically we see people get a wrist splint and it helps a lot in the beginning. When it starts to fail, despite those treatments, I think you want to get your surgeon involved because we want to treat carpal tunnel earlier rather than late. We don't want to treat it once you have irreversible nerve damage. So who are the patients that it's reversible? I mean, are there are there a group of people that it seems, is everybody that has carpal tunnel right now just destined for surgery or who are the typical group that gets better? Well, certainly the people that have mild carpal tunnel and they get treatment early on, those are the people you might get better. Some people get carpal tunnel uh, symptoms when they're younger, and it's not carpal tunnel at all. I can't tell you. Many young people who come in have carpal tunnel symptoms, 
and I examine them. And the conclusion we really reach a lot of times is they really never had carpal tunnel to begin with. They had numbness for another reason, like a neck problem. Or they had a positional problem. They do something where they keep their wrist bent a lot while they're working, you know, on their homework at night in their bed and they don't uh, give their wrist a chance to change position. So those people that are early on and treated have a chance. And those people who don't have carpal tunnel to begin with have a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like what you're saying is somebody might need to see you eventually if they've got symptoms. If the symptoms don't get better, it's pretty straightforward. It's mm-hmm. it's as easy as it gets. Mm-hmm. And you say that you love the surgery because it's such a dramatic improvement right away. Are there people that don't get better even Absolutely. after surgery? Sure. So it's a spectrum of disease. The earlier we treat it, the easier it is on the patient, the faster they get better. When you have somebody who's had carpal tunnel for two or three years, I always tell people that the thought that carpal tunnel surgery doesn't work is a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm -hmm. because if you wait long enough, you'll create nerve damage and I cannot help you. Mm -hmm. Having said that in 23 years, I've probably operated on, I don't know, five to 7,000 carpal tunnels. And I'm going to tell you that well over 99% of them get better. So even though I can see the worst of them and the best of them, the easy ones, the hard ones, the vast majority will improve whether or not they get everything back is a different story. How has your surgical technique in repairing carpal tunnel changed over the last 10 years? Well, I would go back 20 years. Okay. Let's go back 20. When I trained, I did every one of them open and I trained actually at the center where they invented endoscopic carpal tunnel, interestingly. And the gentleman I trained with thought it was terrible because in the beginning there were problems and I was here, I think after seven years in practice of doing only open carpal tunnel, I started doing endoscopic carpal tunnel, which is a small incision, not in the hand, but in the forearm and a camera and a little device with a blade that you put under the ligament that you have to open. And then we open up the ligament, take the pressure off without ever violating the palmar tissue. And so I started doing that seven years into my practice and I haven't looked back that really changed the way I do it. There's still times where I do it open. There's still times where I have to do tendon surgery there, or somebody has gout in their wrist that needs to be removed at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's really where the change happened. Is that, so, you know, it's, it's funny because people that are facing surgery ask a lot of questions. A lot of times people will say things about other surgeries like, am I doing more damage by waiting? And usually the answer for everything else is no. Do you have any other examples in your practice where earlier surgical intervention is equal to better outcome? Let's hold off on the answer to that. We're going to take a short commercial break. And if you've just joined us, WSTU 1450. Dr. Rob Forster, hand surgeon. You've just joined us for Play Your Best Hand. Rob Forster from Florida Orthopedic Specialist. We'll be back in just about a minute.
Welcome back. You're listening to Paradox. We are here today talking to our guest, Dr. Rob Forster from Florida Orthopedic Specialist. And right before we went on break, I asked you a question. You were talking about carpal tunnel syndrome and how it is one of those conditions where the earlier you're treated, the better your outcome is. And I had asked you if that is the only condition that you treat where that's the case, because many times in orthopedic surgery, patients are worried they're hurting something and really they can wait until it's a necessity. But you said that you have another surgery that you perform better earlier than later, which is? Trigger finger surgery. It's very interesting. Uh, recent study just came out that confirmed what we kind of know, and that is when you treat a trigger finger earlier on, you get a better outcome. The longer you have a trigger finger, interestingly, you start to get a little contracture at the joint, the middle joint in the finger we call the PIP joint or the PIP proximal joint. And those little contractors can cause pain, swelling, stiffness. And if you wait long enough, you start to get tendon damage with trigger fingers. Eventually, part of the trigger finger surgery is to remove part or all of one of the two tendons in the hand for the more severe trigger fingers. So taking care of it early gives you earlier return to function, less pain and joint stiffness later, and a better outcome. So... We have patients all the time that present with trigger finger, and they always want to know what causes it. And help us explain this to our patients, because what I've been telling my patients, don't laugh at me. I didn't laugh no, yet. I, this is, I'm, I'm waiting you, to hear. Uh, Bad luck is my favorite answer. Oh, my God. No, no, no. <laughs> I tell my patients seriously, though, that think of a rope with a knot in it, and you're pulling that rope through a silk stocking, and that knot gets stuck on that stocking because your tendons are surrounded by tendon sheaths. Okay, Dr. Forster, take it from there. That's very good, but I got a better one. Okay, let's I, hear it. I basically look at them and I tell them this story. I said, your, your muscles in your forearm and your tendon is the rope that goes all the way to your finger. And if I had a sailboat as old as you and the ropes were original material, how do you think those ropes would be? They'd have problems. They get frayed. They get a little lumpy. And the real reason they get lumpy is because they go across a tight spot. And the area that's tight is right where we get that trigger finger. That's the first tight spot we get. So those ropes, which are our tendons, are made of collagen fibers. And those collagen fibers bunch up a little bit at a time right in that spot. And eventually they keep bumping into the pulley, which is a collagen strap that holds that tendon to the bone or your silk stocking in your example. And it, it bumps into it and it bumps into it and it bumps into it. And our bodies are not like metal pulleys on a sailboat. Our bodies are alive. And so that collagen's alive. It gets swollen. It gets inflamed. It doesn't like being bumped into. And as it does, so the tunnel gets smaller and as it gets smaller, then the tendon doesn't go through or it gets stuck. Injection versus steroid. I mean, injection with steroid versus surgery. So are there certainly people that you don't want to inject, somebody who's a brittle diabetic, somebody who's got a risk for infection. Um, so I like doing a steroid injection. I like doing a steroid injection early on. They have a better success rate. But I tell people the success rate with one or two injections in a non-diabetic is about 60%. Those are okay odds. Surgeries closer to 95 to 100%. So, you know, when you have that discussion with some people, some people are not, they don't like the 60% number. They want to be done and be over with it. So surgery is fine. Um, certainly we want to see if we give them an injection, 
we want to see three months. We know from science, from looking at studies, that if you get better for four weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, the chances of a second injection working are not very good. And you're better off just going on and getting the surgery. So we want to see if we do give a shot, we want to see at least three months before we get a second shot. If we do two shots and it fails, that's it. Off to surgery. The risk of tendon damage goes up. Recovery time after surgery? Interestingly, we like to move the finger right away, but we don't want to repetitively grab like a golf club. Just for our listeners, he said move the finger, not remove the finger. (laughs) (laughs) My Jersey accent, huh? Uh, (laughs) I'll try to straighten that out for you. So the, uh, the, the, the reality is if you repetitively grab something afterwards, you will cause further inflammation on that surgical site and reactivate the inflammation on the tendon and cause problems. So generally I tell people return to something like golf or tennis is about four weeks, but they're going to move their fingers right away. They're going to drive their car the next day. They can take a shower and get it wet after four days. There's a lot they can do. They just aren't going to resume all things right away. They're not going to grab a weight and start doing weightlifting for four weeks. Now, there's something that's similar to trigger finger, but it's not trigger finger, and it's a contracture of that tendon. We see them a lot. They're hard to say. They're even harder to spell. It's a Dupertrins contracture. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. That's a, a, a Dupertrins is named after a French surgeon who described this in the early 1800s. And it actually dates back hundreds of years, and the earliest records are in people from Scotland and they were the bagpipers and it was a curse that they couldn't get their finger around the bagpipe as it curled down. So this is a genetic disease and it used to be blamed on drinking alcohol, but it really has nothing to do with alcohol. It's a genetic disease. Well, that's a relief. Thank God. (laughs) Right. And so, and the, and the interesting thing is this is exactly the opposite of trigger finger and carpal tunnel. So we don't run out and operate on Dupatrins just because we have it because the genetic material is in all of our cells, sometimes doing the surgery or treatment will stimulate that gene to turn on and make more Dupatrins. So there are a few patients that have Dupatrins that we do surgery and it looks like it comes right back. And the patient goes, what'd you do, doc? There are multiple different treatments for it. And what we try to do is tell people that when your finger bends down and you can no longer put your hand flat on your table, on your kitchen counter, that's the time you want to come see the hand surgeon. And now I always check these patients for diabetes as well, because I have read that Dupertrins is more common in diabetic patients. Have you heard that or have you read that? I think there's some literature to that effect, but I don't believe it's actually borne out in reality. And, and part of that problem is you've got population studies and, Certain populations may have a higher incidence of diabetes than others. And if they also have a higher incidence of the Dupatrins fascia, that's how we got to the alcohol causing Dupatrins in the first place. Right. So it's not there. It does not imply causality. It's just they are mutually in the mutually indistinct, so to speak. So bad luck from two bad luck. I was just going to say my favorite answer. I was looking for something more more educational to nope, say. Nope. Just, I'm over it's that. It's just bad luck. Bad right? luck. We're just over that. 
Dr. Forster, how much shoulder surgery do you do? Because I feel like we spend all day talking about shoulders in primary well, care. Probably about 10, 15% of my surgery is shoulder surgery. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's, I, I don't know if it's our patient population, but I feel like I'm talking about shoulders all the time. It's, I mean, it's a joint where we have uh, a, a, a natural degenerative process that happens as we age. And we happen to live in a community where we age. We have the elderly here. And so we see quite a lot of people that have a bone spur in their shoulder and it's causing their biceps to get inflamed or their biceps tend to rupture. And then that may lead to a rotator cuff tear. And so we see a, a fair amount of that. That's for sure. Have you ever owned a car and it's been recalled? Uh, no. Shoulder surgery is God's recall. It's a <laughs> poorly designed joint. It's just, it's just a poorly designed joint. Oh, I disagree. You, it's disagree? one of the most Lucky amazing joints. It. But it's poorly designed. Okay, because, well, let's have a let's because, have an argument. Because it's easy. I'd love to. Okay. Because it's easy to dislocate. Uh-huh. Uh, it's easy to to rupture. You have very little support anteriorly, very little support inferiorly. You only have your scapular supporting it posteriorly. And there's not much that supports it laterally either. Let's hear the opposing okay, argument. Okay, let's hear the opposing argument. Could you imagine if your shoulders could not allow your arm to reach over your head? It'd be horrible. It's a imagine if you're a woman and your shoulder didn't allow you to reach behind to do your bra. They would just design a better bra. How about if your arm couldn't reach behind to your backside to clean up sometimes? Right? So the shoulder allows your arm to be positioned in space for activities. And and, and just like in the hand, the more the joint allows you to move is good, but the more proximal it is, it gives you so many more degrees of freedom. So the fact that the shoulder can go up and turn around and go to the back and go to the front makes our hand, which is the functional unit of the arm, go into positions where it can do so many more things. The more you restrict the shoulder, the less function you get out of the entire extremity. Now we see people sometimes that have what's called a frozen shoulder. Can you explain to our listeners what a frozen shoulder is? Absolutely. First of all, those people understand how good our shoulder is. <laughs> they're, they're pro shoulder. <clears throat> they know. They can appreciate how fabulous our shoulders are. Several millennia from now, we as humans will have better designed shoulders. <laughs> He's be not called, giving up. They'll be called the Pearlstein shoulder. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> You were the first. You were the first that said you didn't like it. We so hear you. That's it. A frozen shoulder is exactly that, a shoulder that's not moving, and it hurts. So something causes inflammation in the shoulder joint, whether it's a little tear of a ligament in the joint, whether it's a little arthritis, a loose piece of cartilage, something you knocked it, you caused inflammation, but it causes inflammation in the capsule the flimsy little capsule that allows us to have all this motion gets inflamed, thickened, and tight. And all of a sudden, we can't move it. And when we do, we pull against that capsule that's inflamed and it hurts. So we won't move our shoulders. And so at, at capsulitis... Adhesive capsulitis. Adhesive capsulitis is another name for frozen shoulder. And so the treatment for that is really to get rid of the inflammation and restore the motion, which is a physical therapy. Physical therapy. And 
most people do get better with physical therapy and treatment. However, some don't, and they need to have a surgery to go ahead and release that joint and restore that function. More common in women than men? Don't know, but I believe in my experience, I would say yes. And why would that be? I don't know. That's a good Leanne, question. Do you, do you have any oh, thoughts on that? D- just doing more? Is that is that an option? To that, that, that is an option. <laughs> I like that answer. Multitasking? I like that answer. Um, okay, so a lot of people getting shoulder surgery are having surgery for torn rotator cuffs. That's how you say that, right? Correct. What is your favorite miss? saying of that the, oh the rotary cup rotary cup yeah. I, i'm <laughs> expecting a mug from the rotary club you know with an Any emblem day that... now <laughs> okay and so can you tell us what is the rotator cuff sure set of muscles so like dr pearlstein described the the shoulder is a dynamic joint and it has very little natural stability it has well, I a actually shallow- said it was poorly designed. You're calling it dynamic, but go ahead. We'll go with your words, it's- dynamic. You know, you are asking for a shoulder injury. You realize that, right? Like, God, I'm you're gonna- not going to double on Friday. You're going out, and you are going to have two frozen shoulders at the end of it. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, that's nasty. <laughs> yeah, that's nasty. <laughs> so, all right. And then you'll finally know the name of Dr. Forster's practice. <laughs> Okay, sorry. <laughs> Something about Florida orthopedic specialist. And if you just joined us, it is Dr. Robert mm-hmm. Forster from Florida orthopedic specialist. Go ahead, finish your. Boy, answer. I'm not going to cross you, Leanne. You ever, I'm going to be in trouble. You even remember yeah. the question sure. at this point. Okay. So, so the rotator cuff are a series of muscles, and they really are very strong, powerful muscles that control the motion of the shoulder. They initiate the motion to bring your shoulder up. And then that big muscle on the outside, the deltoid, will take over once you get the arm up to, to hold it there. But it, it those are the muscles that allow you to turn your arm in and out and bring it up. They're very powerful muscles. They also hold that humeral head or the ball of the joint into the cup. Now, the cup's very shallow. So those muscles are needed to pull that humeral head into that cup and give it stability. He's worried about stability because he doesn't exercise his rotator cuff enough. <laughs> Please don't get him started on exercise. Yeah, yeah, we don't have enough yeah, time. We we have we're going to bring on an exercise physiologist to one of these shows just to talk about what people should and shouldn't do. Not that we're trying to hurt your business, but we just want people to see you appropriately and not injure themselves. You're there to fix these problems. I'm I'm all for that. And and I got to tell you, one of the most interesting conversations I have with people as we get older. You know, when you're 60, 65 and you go to the gym and you go work out, the one thing you really don't want to do is lift weight over your head. The military press and the overhead activities, I call them rotator cuff makers. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. You'll come see me and I can repair your rotator cuff. Mm -hmm. But if you really don't look forward to that surgery, I would not do those exercises. So what's happening to create the tears? So as we get older, we get a little spur under our acromioclavicular or AC joint or our shoulder blade. And that little spur as it hangs down doesn't necessarily cause a problem until we reach up. Mm -hmm. And then when we reach up with force and we, we use more force, we're actually driving that tendon into the spur and starting to cut it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people get lucky because they pop their biceps tendons first. And when they pop their biceps tendon, it hurts, it gets bruised, they get a deformed muscle. 
but their pain gets better. And it's a big clue that their rotator cuff is next. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Take let's, good care of it. So let's go back to anatomy for a second, because we know that there are four muscles slash tendons that make up the rotator cuff, the subscapularis, uh, subscapularis the teres minor, supraspinatus, and infraspinatus. infraspinatus. And teres minor. Yeah. And teres minor. Uh, by the way, you know, teres minor and teres major, they're, they're good cuts of beef by the way. So <laughs> District Table, another one of my favorite restaurants, shameless plug, always has Terry's Major in the menu. But this is Terry's Minor. It's another muscle. Just a food digression. We a have, food digression. We and one we can, or two per show. Well, we can go there sometimes, but let's talk about how it applies to humans. The most common, I think, tendon that's torn is the supraspinatus. Is that correct? Yes. That okay. is by far the most common. And do they always need to be surgically repaired? No. So small tears can be treated conservatively with therapy and, and why does therapy help? Because you're strengthening those muscles. When you get pain and you get an injury, you naturally avoid using that joint and your body, your brain actually churns off the nerves to those muscles. The classic is the ACL tear, right? We tear our ACL Today, we can rehab much better because we don't let the For our muscle... listeners that don't know what the ACL is, explain oh, to sure, our listeners what that is. Sure, that's the big knee ligament you know, that the, the football players all tear. So years ago, when they tore their ACL, we'd put them in a knee brace, get back their motion, and then six weeks later, we'd do their ACL reconstruction. What we realized was that our brain is telling <coughs> excuse me, our nerve, don't contract that muscle. Because if you contract that muscle, it's going to cause pain in that knee. So our body has a natural mechanism to prevent the pain, which is turn the muscle off, right? Just turn off the breaker switch. Don't do that. But when you do that, you get muscle atrophy. So today, if you're a high-level athlete or even a regular athlete, we don't let you turn off that muscle. We go and exercise that muscle and rehab you in preparation of the surgery so that you don't get muscle atrophy. And then right after surgery, we keep going. So the same thing's true with the shoulder. When you tear your rotator cuff or you're going through the process of a rotator cuff tear and you're injuring it, your muscles are not firing properly. Your brain is saying, don't do that. And those muscles get weak. And as they get weak, the humeral head, remember we said those muscles have to be strong to hold the ball in the cup. The cup is shallow. The humeral head slides up and grinds even farther into that spur. So it's a natural progression. And the therapy is critical to get those muscles strong and allow the body to pull the humeral head down and away from the spurs. Mm -hmm. So for partial rotator cuff tears, therapy is one of the first line treatments? It is the first line treatment, absolutely. For how long? You know, that's a, there's no right answer. So it's, it's long enough for you to learn how to do the exercises independently to get the motion back. Uh, some people really need to be pushed and they continue to progress for eight weeks. Some people, you know, need three visits to learn how to do it and get the bands and do it themselves. Yeah. And you've got three kids, right? Mm, Yeah. At last I counted. Yeah. Uh, when you unload groceries from the car, do you bring your own bags to the store to use those plastic bags? I have three children, so I can't remember anything. Most certainly not the reusable bags. Okay, so if you're using the plastic bags and you try to carry them all in at the same time on one finger, mm-hmm. yeah, let's talk about mallet finger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about how you can 
rupture that distal tendon and you develop what's called a mallet finger because it's the most common tendinous injury of the hand. Yeah. All right. So the mallet finger is the extensor tendon that attaches just behind the nail. And I don't know how you got there from the plastic bags, but I'm going with it anyway. It's a stretch. Yeah, it's, it's a stretch. It's hard. It's sort, just, of, sort of like exercise. Sort of like stretching that Stay tendon. Stay tuned it's in. Very, you know what's really crazy? I can't tell you how many older folks are making their bed and they tuck their sheet in, and that's when they rupture it. Isn't that They're crazy? tucking in the sheets. And it's not a lot of force because it's a really thin little tendon, and it pops. So a mallet finger is a functional deformity, which means that your hand works well with it, but it doesn't look good. And so the treatment is you want to splint it and let it heal. And the key that everybody messes up, you have to wear that splint full time for six weeks. It means in the shower. It means at night. It means every time you take it off, you keep the finger straight because every time you bend it, you're just re-tearing that tissue. So if you take it off and you just want to clean your hand and you bend your finger, start over the clock. And that's why people don't do so well. Okay. Well, there's another tendinous injury, and I'm not really sure what this one is. No. But it's pretty common. <laughs> and they used to call it, they changed the name. It's called Gamekeeper's Thumb, right? What is Gamekeeper's Thumb? So the Gamekeeper's Thumb comes from old England where they used to take the chickens and they would snap their necks with their thumb. And it's really an injury to the collateral ligament at the, at the metacarpal phalangeal joint. or the. It's also called Skier's Thumb. Mm-hmm. So it's not the... It's the second joint of the thumb, and you tore the ligament, and so you lose the stability of that joint. So every time you pinch, you no longer have that ligament to hold the joint in place, and the joint slides out of place, and it's painful, and you have a very weak pinch. Untreated, it will lead to arthritis. Here's something you may see a lot, Leanne, with your children as you're pulling them along, nursemaid's elbow. Mm. Let's talk about nursemaid's elbow. What is it? It's actually a dislocation or subluxation of the radial head at the elbow. And interestingly, it's the way you pick up the kid. If you grab the child and they try to fall down at the same time and twist, you'll pop it out of place. And it's just, it's just, they're so pliable and supple at that age. This is a favorite party trick for uh, doctors is that this kid comes in wailing and screaming with this dislocated radial head. And if you know how to fix it, it's like immediately... I got the phone calls. It was always there's a brachial plexus injury because they're not moving their arm. I, I, I must have gotten that phone call a dozen times. And then you look like a magician. You look like a magician. You go in there and you just feel the little bump and you you just churn their wrist and, and pop it in. And all of a sudden they're a normal kid again. Magical. It's fantastic. Sometimes the best part is when they go get their x-ray taken and they all of a sudden they come back and they're moving their arm because the x-ray tech moved their arm and reduced it. I love that. I actually <laughs> did that to my mom. She fell in the street one time uh, and, you know, dislocated her. And when I pulled her up, it went back into place. She still had a fracture, but, well, you know, it wasn't dislocated. That wasn't a small baby. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So tell us about tennis and golfers' elbows. Those are some they're, common maladies. And tell us quickly because we're down to one. Tell us quickly because we're down to one minute before the end of the show. Those are both injuries to the origin origin of a, of a muscle at the elbow so golfers is on the inside tennis is on the outside and it really it's a tear that doesn't heal and there are a lot of people that have tears like this that don't have pain it's the person who has a tear and still has the pain that's the problem patient that we have to treat okay bad swing 
And we're going to have to end the show because we're out of time. Oh, my God, this has been so much fun. Rob Forster, great guest, Florida orthopedic specialist. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My pleasure. Hope to do it again. See you next week, guys. Good night, Leanne. Good night, Ira. We're filming at night. (laughs) 